in every uh, stone building, uh, one stone is crucial. It's uh, laid first, typically, and typically it's laid at the corner of, of a building, what's going to be a corner, or the intersecting angle where two walls of the building, they, they come together. Its purpose, of course, is to ensure that the building is square and that it's, that it's stable. It's the rock upon which the weight of the entire structure rests. That stone is called the cornerstone. The cornerstone is crucial because all the other stones for the building are going to run off of that one stone. If the cornerstone is off by just a, a little bit, um, then by the end, of the, when the wall is built, um, it's not going to be level or it's not going to be straight. And there's always a possibility then <laughs> that um, uh, the building is going to collapse. So you say, well... Sutton, what, what does um, a cornerstone have to do with us this, this morning? I mean, why bring up this whole idea of uh, a cornerstone? Well, because simply it's another name for Jesus. As we look forward to celebrating Jesus' birth on Christmas Day, you know, each Sunday morning as we get closer to that day, we're going to be taking a deep dive into different names for Jesus that are given to us in the New Testament. Last week, if you were with us, we looked at the, the name for Jesus called the Word out of John chapter 1. This morning, we come to another very interesting, um, unique name um, for Jesus, and that is Chief Cornerstone. I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can use one of the pew Bibles in front of you or you know, go to your app on your phone and find it there. Ephesians chapter 2. Here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, here's we find this name for Jesus. Look with me. It says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Some translations put it being the chief cornerstone. There it is. <laughs> There's that name for Jesus Christ. Cornerstone. Now, I got to tell you, this is not the first time in the Bible that um, this title was used for Jesus. In fact, if you go back into the Gospels, you go back to Matthew 21, 42, Jesus himself, quoting from Psalm 118, verse 22, applies this name um, to himself. Then uh, in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, as Peter stood up before the uh, Jewish Sanhedrin, he picks up on this same idea and he proclaims that Jesus Christ, the one they crucified, the one that has been risen from the dead, that he has now become the chief cornerstone. Then later in Peter's first letter, you go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, again, he, Peter metaphorically refers to Jesus as the cornerstone. So when Paul uses this name here for Jesus, it's not the first time, but we need to ask, uh, what, what's Paul doing here? I mean, why does he use this name? And, and what does it mean that he applies it to Jesus, and how does it help us understand who Jesus is a little bit more? Well, to answer that question, what we need to do is we need to look at the context here of, of Ephesians chapter 2. 
And when we do that, we go back to cha- uh, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11, and we, we find ourselves in the middle of a uh, Paul stepping into a family squabble. <laughs> family uh, argument, as it is. It's a squabble because it's between the Jews and the Gentiles. In fact, look with me at verse 11. Look what he says here. Therefore... Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He's referring to two camps here. Okay? Identifies two camps. There's the circumcised camp. That's the Jews. And then there's the uncircumcised camp. That's the Gentiles. And as we all know, the, the Jews, they had a a long history with God, right? I mean, they were the people of God. Israel was God's favored nation. But not the Gentiles. And there was this dividing wall between these two camps. I mean, literally, a, a dividing wall. Listen, if, if you lived in the first century um, and you were to go to the, the temple, what you would find there would be four courts, separated by walls. The outermost court was uh, the court of the Gentiles. Moving inward, there was the court of women, and then there was the court of the Israelites, and then the, the, the most inner court in that temple was the, the court of priests. Um, true to its name, then, the court of Gentiles was the only place that Gentiles were allowed to go into uh, to worship there in the, in the temple. In fact, in 1871, archaeologists actually found this dividing wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of women. And on that wall was a, uh, a warning uh, put in strong words. The warning said this on that wall, do not proceed any further for fear of death. <laughs> strong warning. So you can imagine this. Here are these um, uh, two camps um, um, and and, and this long history of not getting along together. And Paul reminds these Gentile believers in verse 14 that at one time there was this dividing wall of hostility. They had been segregated, the Gentiles. They had been segregated from their Jewish brothers and sisters in, in the worship of God. But Now, Paul says, thanks be to God. And when Christ died, what he did was he he dismantled that wall. And so now the Jew and Gentile can come together as one people and they can worship together. So Paul has got these two groups in the same church and he sits down with both sides, the whole family, you know, as it were. And Paul says, God here is doing something that is brand new, family. (laughs) He's not only taking down the dividing wall, but he is building a a temple, a holy temple, a dwelling place for God. Peter, in in his first letter, he calls it a spiritual house um, that is built uh, using living stones. Living stones are those who call on the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You and I, we, we're living stones. <laughs> and the chief stone in this spiritual building 
that is being built, the chief stone is the chief cornerstone. That's Jesus Christ. Um, now, I understand a cornerstone, the idea of a cornerstone, that picture may not mean much to us today. It really didn't mean much to me until I started investigating a little bit more about it. I mean, it doesn't mean much like it meant to those first century believers there in Ephesus. For us today, I mean, we call these um, those ceremonial blocks in which, you know, oftentimes we uh, place things or, and, we, and we stamp the date of when the building was built um, on them as a cornerstone. In fact, we've got a couple of them here at the church. I've got them up here. So these are the two cornerstones, ceremonial cornerstones that we have here in, in our church building. You see, First Evangelical Free Church, that's on this building, this section, uh, which was built first. is built in 1950. The church was started in 1884 to 1950. Then the, the other side, the education wing with the gym and everything, that was built in 1964. So they put that ceremonial cornerstone there. You can see it outside. But I got to tell you, those are not the type of cornerstone that uh, uh, Paul here is talking about. Cornerstones in ancient buildings, as I said, they were the primary load-bearing stones in the whole building. Typically, they were the largest. They were the most costly stones in, in the whole building. In fact, one cornerstone that was found in Palestine was reported to weigh as much as 570 tons. And great care was taken when it came to putting the cornerstone on the foundation. I mean, that cornerstone, it had to be level. It had to be square. Because that one stone would determine the, whole, the lines of the, for the whole building. Every brick and every stone that would be laid into that building would have to be aligned with that cornerstone. So you say, well, so what does that mean that Jesus is called the, the chief cornerstone? I mean, what insight does this give us about Jesus, you know, the one whose birth we celebrate at Christmas? Well, I bring out simple, two uh, simple truths and that is the first one is that as the chief cornerstone, Jesus, we find our identity in him. We align our lives <laughs> to him because he's the, the cornerstone. He is our starting place. He's our identity. In fact, look with me at um, uh, Look with me at who we are in Christ. Look with me at verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Understand that for these Gentiles, the effects, when they aligned their lives to Jesus, were immediate. <laughs> and and, and mind-boggling. I mean, just, just completely... Uh, unbelievable to them. I mean, upon believing Christ, their whole identity was changed. These outcasts, you know, once they're outcasts, now become um, the center uh, of, of God's purpose. Once they were interlopers, and now they become insiders. Once, you know, they, they were aliens, they become heirs. Once they were the lowest class, now they are first class. <laughs> Citizenship, see, in, in the Roman Empire depended upon you know, your family lineage, um, power, and, uh, you know, your financial means. And, and 
you know, Roman Empire, it classed people accordingly, a first class, second class, you know, third class. Belonging in the Jewish cultural religion also rested on a family line and, and on, on social status. But now, Paul says, our identity, it's not tied up in whether we are Gentile or Jew or whether we are slave or free, whether we are women or men, whether we are old or young, whether we are Republican or Democrat, whether we are citizens of the United States or citizens of the Ukraine, people without their wits or whether we're people with our wits. <laughs> our identity is not in all those things. Because we have aligned ourselves now to the chief cornerstone, our identity is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. In his book, Identity Matters, Christian author Terry Wardle tells a story from his childhood. Terry had a hand-me-down, fixed-up, big blue girl's Schwinn bike. One day, his mom finally let him to let him to uh, venture out on his own in the neighborhood, out of his own neighborhood, and Wardle tells what happened next. He says, I had broken free from the constraints of my little neighborhood, and I was on my own to experience a grand adventure. I felt like somebody, you know, even on a big blue girl Schwinn bike with saddlebags. I crossed the railroad tracks and then rumbled over a small creek on a single-lane bridge. The bridge, made of wood and steel, it was no big deal. But on that day long ago, it became a bridge too far. As I began to cross, four teenage boys stepped onto the far side of the bridge. I intended to pass on by. They had other things in mind. One of the boys grabbed my handlebars and spun my bike to an abrupt stop. Hey, where do you think you're going? He snarled. As another boy chimed in, yeah, kid, where are you going? Instantly, I knew that they intended to beat me up. I was petrified. I couldn't fight or break free to run, so I stood there, frozen. Suddenly, one of the bullies asked, what's your name? I answered him in a high-pitched, pre-adolescent, quivering voice. Terry Wardle. <laughs> the three remaining teenagers got a bit silent, and they began looking at each other nervously. Are you related to Tom Wardle? Tom was much older cousin who happened to be play defensive end on the high school football team. But I lied and told them Tom was my brother. They immediately backed off. One of the boys straightened out my shirt and started saying, hey, hey, we're just fun and you know harm. You're a great kid. And listen, if anyone ever gives you any trouble, you just let us know because we'll take care of them. That was a formative day for me, he writes. I learned that simply being Terry Wardle was not enough to be respected and accepted and safe. In the panic of the moment, when the cry for safety was loudest, I lied. Yes, everything did turn out okay, but I had to pretend to be something I was not or they would have roughed me up. I learned that this is an unsafe and ungenerous world and that attaining any degree of success in life would demand much more than simply being me. You know, I think like Terry Wardle, you and I, we've all found ways to base our sense of identity 
and significance in something else besides who our true identity is. Our true identity is found in Jesus Christ. (laughs) We need to remember the life-determining change that Christ has brought in us. The radical movement from being dead in our sins to now having life in Christ. Jesus is the one whom we, as, as living stones, must align our lives to. He is the starting point of everything we are and everything we do. Our thinking, our attention, our living, our, our relationships, all of it must line up with Christ and his word in Christ. See, we've been remade. Christ, our cornerstone, now defines us. And because we're defined by Christ and aligned with him, then a second truth becomes a reality for us, and that is together we find cohesion in him. Look look with me at verses 21 and 22 here. In him, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit or in the Spirit. You notice that these verses here, I want you to notice this. Look back at these verses because they begin and end with that little word in. Do you notice that? In Christ, the building is bound together and grows into a temple in the Lord. And in him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God in the spirit. (laughs) The repetition within underscores the fact that our union is with God and with each other. It all takes place in Christ. We're being joined together and being built together in Christ. Christ, the chief cornerstone, is the one who unites us. See, we cannot separate our relationship with God from our relationship with each other. You can't do that. It's impossible to do. The two are so interwoven that they do not exist in isolation. Christ, as our cornerstone, has made us a a new people. He has made us a, a, a new family. He's made us a a new body. He's made us a a new temple, a new building together. (laughs) And here's the great news about all this. I want you to get this. Because of that, we belong. You belong. I belong. We belong together. Christ brought us home to God. We live in God's house as members of his family. And at the same time, um, we are a house together in which God lives. In fact, look again with me at verse 22. Look what he says there. In him, you also are being built together, what? Into a dwelling place for God. Isn't that amazing? We're a dwelling place for God. We, the church, (laughs) with all of our imperfections, all of our uh, petty concerns and pride and, and, and prejudice, we are God's holy temple, God's earthly home. Yes, by grace, it is, 
here in us, this local body of believers, that God lives. The 1992 film, A River Runs Through It. I don't know if you're familiar with that. If you've seen that or watched it, maybe you watched it a long time ago, it's kind of become a, a classic of some sort. Um, it was based on an autobiographical novel of Norman McLean. And he chronicles two uh, brothers coming of age in the early 20th century in Missoula, Montana. The boys uh, grew up under the stern tutelage of their minister father. And this preacher teaches his sons to, about life and about grace and about, about love through the art of fly fishing. But as the boys mature and as they grow up, they follow these different, very different paths. One goes, you know, kind of follows a straight and narrow. The other goes off wild living. And they find that fishing is the one bond, that fly fishing is the one bond that still draws them together as adults. Thus the title, A River Runs Through It, was not a description of the land as much as it was a description of a recurring theme in their lives. You see, uh, when all else failed, they could always go back to the river and bond around their love of fly fishing. I thought of that, I thought about this passage Paul is teaching us here. And I said, I thought, you know, if I had to pick a title for what we experience here at, at First Free, it might be a cross runs through it. A cross runs through it. When all else fails, we can always go back to the cross and we bond around our love of the one who died for our sins, the chief cornerstone. See, when we align our life with the chief cornerstone, we find a new identity. And as we find that new identity, then we find a strong cohesion together. Listen, when this truth about who Jesus Christ is, the chief cornerstone reaches us. I think when it, when it really reaches us, as it did to those original recipients, we cannot help but ask a number of different questions. Number one, are we aligning our lives to Christ? Number two, do we, each one of us, envision ourselves as living stones that must fit together with others in order to compose God's living place? And number three, when our families and neighbors and colleagues and communities look at us here at, at First Free, are they struck by the loving and just relationships between us and of those within the broader community? Over the years, um, many famous and expensive uh, restoration and renovation projects have been done, have been done in, in, in buildings around the world. Um, for instance, one of them, a renovation was done in New York City. Uh, started in, um, or finished in 2015. Not sure exactly when it started, but it was the famous St. Patrick's Cathedral there in New York City. 
Here's how a report in New York Magazine summarized the estimated $177 million restoration project that was done. It said the original construction lasted 20 years from Cornerstone to the dedication in 1878. Their current restoration took another nine. More than 150 workers, directed by the architecture firm Murphy, Burnham, and Buttrick, made 30,000 separate interventions, planned and tracked with advanced software, but executed, executed it all by hand. Workers filled the interior with the city of scaffolding. Specialists climbed, um, climbed to heal cracks in stained glass, fixed shattered bits of tracery with invisible puzzle pieces of steel, scour soot off of blackened marble, rebuild eroded filigree, replacing crumbling stones, replaster rib vaults, and revivifying wooden screens. The most impressive tasks aren't even visible, though. Replacing the entire cooling and heating system and hooking them up to a geothermal wells that have been sunk up to 2,200 feet below Manhattan's asphalt crust. The artistry, the expertise, the craftsmanship, they're all top-notch. Then they ask, was it worth all that effort? The article noted this. Before the restoration, sunlight struggled through darkened windows and got sucked into gray-green vaults. Now, though, the stained glass glows and the ceiling restored to its original uh, patterns of pale ochre on plaster painted to resemble stone spreads light on the nave below. I think it's worthwhile for us to keep that image in mind. The next time you begin to think of the greatest and grandest restoration project of them all. <laughs> that is you and me. That's us together. Because together, we are being built into the holy temple of God, a place he will reside. Being built together through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone upon which we're being built, upon which we are aligned. Jesus Christ, our chief cornerstone. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you. We thank you for <laughs> the restoration project that you have chosen to do. That you've chosen to work. God, we know that so many ways we fail you. So many times we don't line up with, uh, with you. We go our own way. But God, you're still at work. God, might you restore us so that we can represent you, not only to each other, but to our world around us. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone that aligns us all together. In your son's precious and holy name, amen.